like this, cal uh, this uh, street calculus cartoon from Gary Trudeau, the Dewsbury uh, creator. Uh, it illustrates the, uh, the feeling of risk. It, it kind of spoofs the analytic side. You have these two guys uh, coming towards each other on a dark street at night. They're trying to decide whether it's safe to greet the other person or should they you know, walk across the street and you know, try to avoid each other. And so these guys are very analytic. They're going through kind of a structured uh, checklist of, of uh, factors to take into account. And then they have an additive model to sort of sum up the risk factors and the mitigating factors. And in both cases, the mitigating factors outweigh the uh, score of the risk factors. Uh, and so uh, they uh, decide to greet each other. Well, of course, the, the point of this is that uh, we never do it quite this way. We, we do it in a fast, intuitive way. I mean, your life could be at stake in a, with how you react to a stranger on a dark street at night, and you're not going to be calculating uh, probabilities and utilities and expected values. Uh, you do it through your, through your sensory uh, experience leading to uh, uh, learned or conditioned uh, uh, gut reactions. And that's the kind of thing I'll be uh, focusing on tonight, this, this, uh, this reaction of, uh, of the feeling of risk and trying to illustrate some of the ways that uh, it influences our behavior. <coughs> so uh, some of the, you know, the outline of the talk is uh, to, uh, I'd like to kind of give a little background as how I sort of slowly got into this area, dealing with what we call affect, an outgrowth of our early risk perception studies. And I'll describe some of the ways that uh, affect influences our, our risk perception and decisions, and then talk about a couple of, uh, of uh, applications of this uh, to these topics of briefly uh, cigarette smoking, uh, motivating charitable uh, response, and perhaps a little bit on mass murder and other catastrophes. That's what I talked about last night. Some of you were, were there uh, last night. I wanted to kind of duplicate things, but I will touch on it a little bit. years ago, there was a, a journal called uh, Neuron uh, that uh, had a special issue on uh, reward and decision. And one of the people who contributed to that was a, a neuroscience from, neuroscientist from Baylor named uh, Reed Montague. And he had some interesting things to say um, about uh, how, we, how the brain processes information. Uh, he was trying to uh, coin a new term called neural economics. We do have the term neuroeconomics. He wanted it to be neural economics. Uh, he said that survival is about uh, economic evaluation, and that the brain is an economic uh, evaluate, uh, uh, evaluation engine. What he meant by that was that, uh, that you know, the, you know, the, there has to be a rapid, ongoing uh, economic evaluation uh, in the nervous systems of mobile creatures. That is, we have to have some sort of fast form of, of, of calculation going on in order to navigate navigate our, our day. He said, without some sort of internal currency in the nervous system, the creature would be unable to assess the relative value of events like uh, drinking water, searching for predators, chasing pet prey, and many other factors where we have to kind of take into account multiple, uh, multiple factors and kind of blend them in some way in order to know whether uh, uh, to go left or to go right or whether to, to uh, have lunch or to, to skip lunch and try to finish a paper that has a deadline coming up. You know, how do we make those uh, decisions? How do we weigh and balance the factors? And he said that the nervous system has to estimate <coughs> the value of uh, 
these actions and convert them to a common scale, and that uh, perhaps uh, work on neurotransmitter dopamine uh, may represent, shows that fluctuations in dopamine may represent one form of internal currency. Well, I don't work at, at that level. I, I work at one level uh, up, uh, looking for a common currency, and to a certain extent, I think that uh, this common currency, they, they, when, the, when the neurons fire, they create feelings uh, within us, and that these feelings are a form of common currency. And by uh, affect, I just mean a balanced feeling of goodness or badness associated with stimulus. Now, that's clearly an oversimplification, you know, uh, but, uh, but uh, I think even as simple as it, as it is, we can, we can get some, uh, uh, some value out of it. I'll try to illustrate how even this very simple notion can, uh, can uh, be interesting to explore. So uh, good and bad. Uh, we, uh, we learn it from childhood. This is a, a book that uh, we saw and got for our grandchildren that you know, teaches you what's, uh, what's good and bad in the world. Culture, our socialization, our families, our culture teaches us that. Some things may be innately uh, wired into the brain to, uh, to uh, affect us positively or negative, negatively. So it's maybe partly innate, but uh, much of it is learned. Uh, and we quickly learn to, uh, to evaluate uh, information uh, according to whether it, that information implies something good or bad. and it's very fast and 
the other form uh, is, of course, what we're familiar with, the analytic form. Uh, deliberative, logical, based on reasons, uses symbols, numbers, conscious appraisals, and relatively slow. Well, it's kind of an oversimplification. Now, there's some debate as to whether all these things hang together as a coherent system or not. But I think it's clear that we, we do process information in, in these uh, different ways, deliberative uh, versus intuitive, and that these two forms of thinking kind of go on simultaneously uh, in our minds, what we might think of as <coughs> a dance of affect and reason. And I don't think we fully understand this dance. We're trying a lot of research, both in neuroscience and in uh, social cognition, is trying to understand how these two uh, ways of thinking you know, interact in the mind as we, as we deal with uh, information. And I'll try to illustrate a few, uh, a few elements that I think are show the, the dominance some cases of the experiential and feeling-based system as it applies to uh, the risk. <coughs> uh, the uh, research on affect uh, has touched upon <coughs> a variety of different types of phenomena, which I won't really, uh, I'll only touch on, on a few of these uh, this afternoon. <coughs> From evaluating gambles to uh, looking at uh, places to uh, go for vacation or take a job, uh, risk perception, risk communication. Uh, I'll touch on the first three. Of course, as you probably know, uh, marketing, as uh, and marketers and, and uh, people in advertising have known about this for decades. They've been way ahead of psychologists in understanding the importance of, of uh, associating, uh, getting people to associate positive feelings with products. That's what uh, is very, uh, very clear in the uh, marketing literature. Protective measures, stigmatization of places associated with uh, <coughs> uh, risk, for example, investment decisions, use smoking, I'll touch briefly on that, and uh, also apathy towards genocide or other large scale uh, phenomena which uh, uh, relate to the difficulties we have associating uh, uh, feeling with uh, <coughs> statistics. Uh, so, how did, I, uh, how did I get into this? Well, it, it's an outgrowth of our early work on risk perception in which we found that uh, an element we called the dread, uh, uh, attribute called dread, seemed to be a very dominant factor in how we were responding to, to, uh, to different hazards, why we were very much uh, concerned about things that posed a risk from cancer more than, than for example, motor vehicle accidents. Uh, and then also we got involved in studying uh, nuclear waste issues and uh, we, uh, the imagery associated with that. These were sort of a couple of the precursors of this, uh, of this uh, interest. Uh, this uh, picture, which won't be very uh, visible here, is an early representation from our first risk perception studies of about uh, 80 different hazards uh, within a factor space defined by two dimensions. And, the, and these dimensions have a number of attributes in them, but basically the dominant uh, dimension of the, the uh, horizontal axis is what we call the dread risk. People uh, said that they had a feeling of dread when they thought about factors out in this part, in this part of the, the space, radioactive waste, uh, nuclear reactor accidents, uh, and so forth. They didn't dread uh, caffeine, aspirin, things at the other end of the, of the spectrum. Uh, we didn't make too much of this. We said, okay, uh, this is interesting. We went on to, to, uh, to think about uh, other factors associated with, the, with this data. 
the valence is, is uh, San Diego came out to plus 10 and Las Vegas minus 7. And then when we make a prediction, well, uh, this person would prefer San Diego over uh, uh, Las Vegas as a place to vacation or site a business and so forth. Anyway, uh, uh, we found that, that this method was highly predictive of, of preferences for cities. We actually did it in a prospective way. We went back uh, 18 months later. We had uh, data on people. We asked them, you know, have you vacationed in any of these places? And we found a correlation between the, the, uh, the, the positive or negative valence of their imagery and whether they had actually uh, vacationed uh, subsequently in the place. So, but anyway, it got us thinking about, about imagery. We wrote a paper about how, how there was a potential for negative uh, impacts that needed to be factored into the decision-making uh, about the nuclear waste repository. But it got us interested in feelings. Okay, going back to that result, we found that early in the risk perception studies about the risk-benefit correlations. Uh, if you think about how risk and benefit are distributed across activities, so you have a space in each of these items is a different activity that carries risk, like uh, driving a car or flying a plane or uh, uh, you know, uh, taking a certain type of medicine, having surgery of a certain type. Uh, these are different activities. And in, in general, uh, one would expect that there'd be a positive uh, correlation between risk and benefit, that uh, if something is high in benefit, it might be low in risk, it might be high in risk. But, uh, but if something is low in benefit, it's unlikely to be up in this part of the space because we try to get rid of uh, activities uh, that are low in benefit, uh, low in, and high in risk. We, not that we always succeed, but uh, we do our best to depopulate this part of the space, which would leave a, a positive skew. Well, this is a, you know, a theory about how the world is uh, constructed. Uh, if you ask people to make these judgments of risk and benefit, you get a, a, a dramatically different uh, picture of, uh, of things. Oops, there we go. You get something that looks like this. And as I mentioned, a high inverse relationship between risk and benefit. Something is high in benefit is low in risk and vice versa. And uh, that's what we observed early on. Eventually, 15 years later, I had a student, Ali Al-Fakami, who did a dissertation on this. And what he found was that, uh, oh, so this is just the, the data, sort of not an actual study, but it illustrates that major slant on risk perception uh, and risk benefit. And what uh, Al-Hakami uh, found was that there seemed to be, uh, the key here seems to be that uh, whether we, one thinks of the activity as good or bad, and that, uh, and that, the, that the evaluation of the activity uh, comes first and serves as a cue to the rating of, of, um, of uh, risk and benefit. And here's again some, some actual data to illustrate it. So uh, from a survey, nuclear power, uh, bad source of radiation. Uh, people, uh, people tend not to like it. Low in benefit, high risk. Medical x-rays, uh, more positive uh, uh, technology in terms of valence, high benefit, low risk. Same thing in chemicals. Pesticides, the bad chemicals, low benefit, high risk. Prescription medicines, high benefit, low risk. And that's kind of what's going on. And, and in, uh, in working with this, we conjured up a concept called the affect heuristic, whereby when you're thinking about risk and benefit, we first evaluate you know, the activity from a valence standpoint. Do I like or dislike this activity? And then you use that as a cue to derive risk and benefit. Now, of course, if you're analytic, you wouldn't do it this way. You would look to see, well, what are the elements of, of risk and how do we, how do we uh, um, evaluate 
evaluate those? What are the facets of benefit, and how do we uh, how do we uh, evaluate those? And you aggregate them in some way, you, uh, and you will likely not get this negative relationship. But when you do it through your gut feelings, it comes out highly uh, negative. So more generally, the affect heuristic says that we a lot of our judgments and decisions are first uh, come to us as a fast affective response that then influence both judgments uh, and uh, and behavior. Uh, so here's an example uh, of how this might play out in something uh, more specific. Uh, what's the difference between a 20% chance and 20 out of 100 in terms of communicating uh, risk? Well, logically, there is no difference. Uh, uh, the percent sign means out of 100. But psychologically, people react differently to information presented uh, as a probability or, or a percentage. We could say that 0.20 well and a relative frequency. They tend to, if it's an adverse outcome that we're evaluating, they tend to see the risk as greater when it's expressed frequentistically than when it's expressed as a probability or as a percentage. Uh, we weren't smart enough to anticipate this. We, we, we found this by chance in, in data and then we started to, to follow it up. Um, so for example, after we had discovered that we started to explore it, we, we found it in the context of people, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who were evaluating the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the risk of releasing someone with mental disorder from a, from a hospital into the community. Uh, what's the, the probability that this person would, would be, commit a violent act uh, upon others or themselves upon release from, from, the, uh, from the treatment facility? And, and so we, uh, we gave scenarios to these uh, uh, specialists, uh, and we then uh, concluded the scenario with an estimate, uh, such as uh, Mr. Jones would have, patients similar to Mr. Jones would have a 20% probability of committing an act of violence to others in the first several months after discharge, or that a patient, 100 patients similar to Jones, 20 would be estimated to be violent. Uh, would you release Jones from the hospital? Was one of the the, uh, the uh, questions that I asked them. Uh, these are people who make these types of decisions. Uh, would you recommend that Jones be discharged? And uh, this is uh, the results from this particular study. They were twice as likely to say, "Do not discharge Jones," uh, if uh, the risk was expressed as 20 out of 100 than if it was expressed as 20 uh, percent. And uh, in further ex uh, exploration, we asked people to, to think out loud while they were making these judgments. And what you see is that uh, in a slightly different context with 10% uh, with uh, here, and people re report more violent uh, imagery when they're uh, responding to the, the uh, frequentistic uh, presentation. So here's this, the 10% uh, uh, study uh, versus one out of 10. And when people were seeing the information as one out of 10, they, they were thinking out loud, they were thinking about, uh, you know, he could be the one out of 10, some guy going crazy and killing people. This is what was going through their mind. When they see 10%, he had very little, uh, much less uh, violent imagery. It was mostly reacting to the numbers. It's a big number or a small number. So it's very subtle uh, in terms of how, how the, you know, the, the, the cue of, uh, uh, triggers the mind to start associating. <coughs> associations carry feelings. Those feelings influence our sense of, of risk. And this is kind of what it's all about in the, the, uh, the, the subtlety of uh, the, the 
this feeling systems. Uh, Christopher Shea at the University of Chicago uh, has also done some interesting work on, on affect and probability. Uh, he and his colleague, uh, Yuval Rottenstrike, um, had four groups of, of, of subjects responding to scenarios about uh, facing the, the possibility of getting a, uh, a painful electric shock or losing, a, losing $20, depending on which condition they were in. And they were and in one condition, two conditions that the shock of the money came with a 99% probability. In the two other conditions, it came with a 1% probability. And what they uh, predicted was that uh, that uh, that the shock would create would be more effective. It would create more stronger feelings uh, than the than the monetary um, uh, values, and that the shock would be then less uh, responsive. To, uh, to the probability, that's what they, they found. With money, the, this is how much the people would pay to get out of the situation. And uh, if it was money, they paid a lot more if the probability was 99% than if it was 1%. If it was shock, uh, they paid almost as much to avoid a 1% chance of shock as 99%. And my take on this is that, uh, that the shock, uh, thinking about the shock uh, creates feelings of anxiety uh, that are not sensitive to probability. You, you don't, you're not scaling. So people probably were, as long as they were thinking about the shock, they had the same kind of level of negative feeling, and therefore they, uh, they reacted almost the same, uh, independent of, of the uh, probability. Now we see this in other, uh, other domains uh, as well. Um, uh, this is a newspaper clipping. Of, um, having to do with the uh, National Lottery in the U.S., which at the time I think was $280 million or something, and it described how people waited in line all night long to buy tickets. Um, and uh, even though the probability was like one in 80 million of winning, uh, and this one person says, you know, I have six kids I have to take care of, said Dexter Walters, uh, 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 that will buy a lot of everything. Maybe I can even quit my job. So this person was imaging the uh, you know the winning of this lottery and probably other people were as well. So when you start to think about that again, so it's it's neglect of probability. A strong feeling about it often leads you to neglect or to become insensitive to the probability uh, of its of its occurring. Uh, we find the same thing uh, uh, in the U.S. perhaps here as well in terms of how we uh, we uh, deal with the possibilities of terrorist uh, uh, attacks in various places. In the U.S. We throw money at any possible um, thing that might be related to, uh, to terrorism, uh, uh, ir irregardless of, of uh, or seemingly irregardless of probability. And Cass Sunstein uh, wrote a, a paper on this. He calls it probability neglect. Uh, 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 he says uh, people fall victim to this if, uh, to the extent that the intensity of their reaction doesn't vary greatly with large differences in likelihood of harm. When probability neglect is at work, people's attention is focused on the bad outcome itself, and they are inattentive to the fact that it is unlikely to occur. So these are, again, uh, uh, illustrations of how when an outcome carries strong feeling, it, uh, it uh, makes us less sensitive to the likelihood of that outcome. Um, more generally, I think uh, I would argue that, that information uh, in order to have meaning, information has to be linked with affect or feeling. And uh, 
research indicates that not only does affect convey meaning upon information, but if without affect, information lacks meaning and won't be used in judgment and decision making, and thus it's a key ingredient of rational behavior. On the other hand, it can lead us uh, to make some very poor decisions. So are we rational, are we not? Well, we are both. The affective system is highly rational. It, 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 it uh, helps us get what, what we want most of the time, and sometimes it, uh, it, it breaks down and leads us to do some really uh, uh, non-rational things. Uh, you know, briefly illustrate uh, And feeling and meaning. Uh, I like this quote from American writer Henry Miller, who in 1999 when she uh, was thinking about the population of China, which was then 1,198,500,000. She said that you got to feel for what this means, and I highlight feeling and meaning. Just take yourself and all your singularity, importance, complexity, and love and multiply by 1,198,500,000. See, nothing to it, she says, and she's probably smiling inwardly when she says that, because you know, we can't do that. We learn as, as young children how to read and write big numbers we can't really feel or get, uh, understand the meaning of a, of a society of a billion people by looking at the number. Clearly, uh, uh, we can't uh, do that. Uh, and although this is obvious, in a sense, uh, it has important implications. So, uh, 1,198,500,000 is a tough one. How about $9? We all know the meaning of $9 or 9 pounds. Here. Uh, we should. We, we deal with these lots of money all the time. Do you know the meaning of nine pounds and nine dollars? Uh, maybe, but it may, I would say it depends on the situation. So we created a situation in which uh, wasn't quite clear what the meaning of nine dollars is. If we had a, we offered people a chance to evaluate a number of gambles that were played on a spinner with 36 outcomes. And uh, if and there were seven winning numbers, and if the spinner landed on a winning number in one case, you would have seven chances to do that out of 36, you'd get nine, nine dollars. Uh, if it didn't, uh, you'd, uh, you'd win nothing. Uh, how attractive is this on a 20-point scale of, you know, of attractiveness? Uh, people rated it as a 13. And they were told, well, we're going to give you a bunch of these gambles. And then we're going to compare, and you'll play. We'll, we'll take a, a pair of these. You'll pay. You'll play the gamble that you rated as more attractive to you. That was the story. But they only saw one gamble. A second group saw a similar gamble, and instead of winning uh, nine dollars, um, there was a. Um, they, uh, if they didn't win nine dollars, they would lose a small amount of money, five cents. Uh, when when they saw the two gambles side by side like this, uh, uh, they rated that as a lower attractiveness because it's a small loss. But if you give these gambles just one at a time to different groups, you get a, di a very different uh, story. You get the, the five cent loss gamble is evaluated as more attractive than the uh, gamble without the loss. Why might that be? Well, again, we sort of stumbled on, we were looking for something else when we designed the study, but then we, we uh, slowly uh, came to see it in a different way. It's because we think uh, and with this gamble, you're responding to the poor probability of winning, seven chances out of 36, and so that puts you on the lower part of the scale. Um, uh, oh, by the way, you can get that with choice as well, and you can see the same. Uh, against a, a sure outcome, uh, the gamble with the loss is, is better. But um, 
going on. Probability is, is what Christopher Shee would call invaluable um, through your feelings. Seven uh, chances out of 36 is a poor chance. And so it leads you to think about the lower part of the scale. Payoff is less valuable. How good or bad is $9 in a no-loss uh, situation? Many don't really know. Uh, and adding the five-cent loss makes $9 come alive with feeling that it becomes weighted in the judgment of raising the attractiveness. Here's the, the, the data, on, some data on this. Where we ask people uh, to evaluate uh, how good or bad is $9 uh, as a payoff uh, in the condition of no loss or loss on a rating scale. So, so uh, when there's no loss, the $9, the dominant response is neutral. You know, uh, when, when you have a small loss, people compare see that the gain is so much better than the loss, uh, the, uh, the evaluation of the $9 is uh, much more positive. So as we say, it kind of comes alive with feeling in the context of the um, decision. So without uh, a strong feeling, this, uh, the, 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 uh, the $9 wasn't weighted in the, in the judgment, and, and the judgment was dominated by the probability. Uh, another, and just an illustration of how meaning and, and, and feeling influence uh, judgments. So, this is what I've said. Um, okay, so, how am I doing for time? Uh, uh, 15 minutes? 15 minutes, okay, so I'll go pretty quickly. Um, another application, an application of uh, this work has been to, uh, to think about uh, this, uh, smoking behavior and whether uh, people are making uh, young people since that's where the smoking most of the beginning, that we can consciously inform uh, rational decisions to begin smoking. Uh, this came out as it is described in the book, uh, Smoking, I did a few years ago. Uh, it relates to the, uh, the uh, assertion that everyone knows the risk of smoking, as this cartoon illustrates from a while back, grass is green, sky is blue, and the day follows night, and Clinton lies. This is a basic cartoon. Letter that someone wrote when they heard that people were suing tobacco companies for uh, lung cancer because they got lung cancer. They said, No one forces anyone to smoke. We've been warned about it. Uh, if I choose to smoke, I must pay the consequences. Uh, uh, it's unfair to the tobacco industry. Uh, we all know the, the risks. And this was uh, uh, exemplified in the work of uh, economist Kip Mistusi, who wrote a book on smoking, to which he, he argued based on. Um, some data that uh, everyone indeed knows the, the risk. In fact, young people overestimate the risk. Uh, I don't want to go into detail on this, uh, on this uh, writing about it. Uh, he kind of based his response, to, uh, his view on this question of 100 smokers. How many do you think will get lung cancer because they smoke? He found an average of 43 on this response. Actually, it was 10 or 15. I don't know. This is the kind of evidence he used to say that people not only know the risk, they overestimate the risk, and therefore uh, they know what they're getting into. Well, um, uh, I've thought about this and worked on it, and come up with a very different um, evaluation. That uh, that uh, and there's a lot of ways you can criticize what he's uh, what he's doing, and and one of the ways is that he neglects the experiential or affect-based element uh, of smoking. Uh, he's got a solely analytical smoke uh, perspective. He neglects the, the feeling um, uh, aspects of it. When you look at experiential, you see experiential, you see that young people start to smoke because uh, 
they do it in a social context. Uh, it feels good. They're not really becoming smokers. They're just taking a cigarette with a friend at a party. They expect to quit. They don't appreciate the, uh, the uh, potential for uh, how quickly and powerfully nicotine addiction will come on and so forth. You can study this. So we've done surveys on this. And it, you, know, you ask people, uh, when you first started to smoke, how much were you thinking about how it might affect your health? The dominant response of adults and, and youth are, is not at all. Uh, uh, how much do you think about it now that you're a smoker? Well, they think about it a lot now, but they didn't when they started. Uh, uh, have you, since you started smoking, have you learned something about the risk that you didn't know? Again, a uh, high percentage said, yes, I did learn something. Um, when you first started smoking, did you think more about how it would affect your future health or about how you were trying something new and exciting? Uh, trying something new and exciting was a dominant response, and so, and so on. Um, uh, they didn't expect to, they weren't thinking about how long they would be smoking um, at, the, at the time. They were just, you know, having a good time, short term, uh, and so forth. Uh, interestingly, if you go up to uh, smokers, as was done both in the UK and the US, people who are smoking right now, uh, and ask them if you could go back in time to when you first started to smoke, would you do it? And uh, you find uh, uh, you know, 80% of adults, 85% of adults, 80% of young people uh, say, uh, say no, and uh, the longer they've been smoking, the more they smoke per day, uh, and the number of quit attempts, all this would even boost this higher if uh, they've been smoking for a longer time. So. Um, I was uh, presented this evidence in uh, litigation against the tobacco industry. <laughs> tobacco uh, lawyers said, well, they're just giving you a socially desirable response. They don't really need this. So we went back, and if someone said no, we asked them, well, why not? And you get this kind of a, uh, response. There's nothing socially desirable about kind of what's going through uh, people's minds. Uh, fear of how they think about uh, smoking is uh, quite uh, extremely negative in terms of valence. And so, uh, again, if you start to think about understanding the risks of smoking, again, the tobacco lawyers would say, you know, 98% of the people you survey will tell you smoking is bad for you. Okay. But you have to kind of think of the understanding of the risk of smoking as like a pyramid where you have superficial awareness, smoking is dangerous, which everyone has. Then you have deep, deeper knowledge, which is, you know, well, what, uh, what are some of the problems that uh, diseases that come from smoking? People have much less knowledge, not only less knowledge about that, they, they don't, and then they don't have deeper knowledge, they don't understand the feeling, you know, the experience of these uh, diseases and uh, so forth. So again, it's a, it's a superficial responding uh, to, to, uh, to the attractiveness of smoking, which is conditioned <coughs> by uh, very uh, uh, aggressive and sophisticated uh, advertising. Uh, as I say, the advertisers have known for decades how to associate a positive uh, valence with, uh, with cigarettes and with words, a lack with pleasure and so forth. So it's a, it's a case where the experiential system dominates and, and, uh, for many people and, uh, and leads them into something that they later regret. Uh, okay, let's sort of finish, finish up. Time is uh, moving. What is the time? More recently, we've been looking, uh, applying this uh, kind of analysis to, uh, to issues related to, uh, to life saving and uh, looking at affective and versus deliberative processes, motivating charitable giving to help people in need, and then uh, uh, looking at 
concept of a warm glow. He said that uh, people uh, help give to help others or, or help others not only because those people need the help, and that's a good thing, but because they feel good about helping. It gives them a kind of a warm glow of satisfaction. And so we started to, to look at that. Unfortunately, this uh, notion of the warm glow has not been studied very much uh, as a psychological concept. We think it's, uh, it's interesting it needs to be studied. With Daniel Westfall and other Peters, we found that if you induce people to, into a negative uh, mood state, have them think about their, their faults, or write down all the things that you, know, you don't like about yourself. Then you give them an opportunity to donate. They're more likely to donate to child need, um, possibly because this is a way of uh, repairing this negative state by doing something good. Uh, you kind of get out of this uh, funk that you've been induced to have. Uh, Peter Singer, a philosopher, has been studying this issue for 30 years. Uh, he wants to get the wealthy people in the world to give more of their wealth to the, uh, to the billion people who are existing on less than a dollar a day. And he says, you know, we all could uh, be doing, even those of us who do uh, uh, contribute, could be doing uh, a lot more without materially hurting our own well-being. And he has been on a campaign. This is a book he wrote last year uh, to, uh, that sums up his thinking over 30 years. And, uh, and basically his basic uh, notion is that if, uh, if, it, if we can prevent something bad from happening, we ought to, without sacrificing anything of comparable moral importance, we ought to do it, uh, and, uh, and uh, he says the application of this principle would be as follows. So he's, he's completely analytic. You know, he does, he, he's to argument, he's trying to convince us to get more. If I'm walking past a shallow pond and see a child drowning, I have to wait and pull the child out. This will mean getting my clothes muddy. This is, and rooting an expensive suit in some of the scenarios. This is insignificant, well, the death of a child would presumably be a very bad thing. And he has, uh, various arguments like this. So uh, we uh, wonder, well, how would people respond to this argument? Uh, would, it, uh, would it influence uh, their donations? So we had a scenario we've been working with uh, uh, for a number of years donating to a child in need, and we, we brought that into this, this picture. Now, one of the, uh, the issues that, uh, about uh, his work is that it, uh, it, it leads people to, uh, to kind of think about themselves as a hero. He says, of course you go in and rescue the child. And uh, you know, it's easy for you to, to do that. You would, you would do that. It would be even easier for you to give money to, uh, to starving children in Africa. So uh, uh, by analogy, uh, by comparison, you ought to do it. But, uh, but he portrays, he gets you thinking about doing something heroic. Well, maybe that creates a warm glow. You don't need to do anything uh, after that because you're still basking in you know, the fact that, fact that you're a good person that would rescue a child. You don't have to uh, uh, donate in the next few minutes. So uh, basically, we tested it. We gave a scenario about a child, uh, actual child, uh, and, and an actual donation uh, option. And, and we find that, uh, that, uh, that uh, oops, I don't think it's very well, that people donate less after exposure to singers and artists. <coughs> so uh, we're not completely clear why this. Uh, some work shows that people feel better about uh, about pro-social activity if it's difficult. People, you know, uh, run a 10K or do other things that are difficult to raise money. Uh, singer makes it look very easy for you to uh, to uh, uh, to donate, and maybe that's uh, that uh, doesn't. Uh, 
produce as anticipated a good a feeling of, of doing it. Uh, anyway, the, uh, <coughs> we need to study this warm glow constant. Uh, how does it? How long does it last if you do something good? Uh, what, if you're feeling good about uh, having done that, are you in kind of a refractory period where you don't respond to <coughs> All of us are constantly bombarded by opportunities to help. You go down the street and people are asking you for money or you get stuff in the mail all the time. So how do we manage this? How do we select which we donate to, uh, when, how often? Uh, I don't think that's been studied very much. And I think uh, it's likely that a lot of this is coming just from a uh, feeling-based reaction. Uh, that uh, it would be good to, to understand uh, better. One of the uh, okay, so we can ask: Is it is this warm glow proportional to the size and frequency of our donations? How long does it last? I ask. That. Uh, do many small donations uh, uh, demotivate other charitable behaviors? Uh, you can go and click on the hunger site every day, and uh, it will donate a small amount of money to uh, or food to. The children, uh, you can do it once a day. If you're doing that regularly, are you less likely then to feel the need to uh, respond to other, other possibilities? Uh, how do we manage these unending requests? And uh, then this also has led us to look at something like this. Uh, we'll finish off with this concept of pseudo inefficacy, another uh, awkward sounding term. What we uh, observed uh, in some of our research is it seems to be that becoming aware of people that you can't help uh, uh, seems to reduce the, uh, the helping response. And uh, as though it demotivates you from, from helping. So for example, if uh, you help because you anticipate a good feeling from, from helping this child, and then you're made aware of this child is one of millions uh, in this situation, uh, people seem less likely to help the child uh, with that information even though it's still all about this child. Um, uh, we find that it goes down even to, uh, to uh, uh, millions. We have experiments with thousands. And finally, we have it with two. You can think about the drop in the bucket. Well, maybe you know, if there are millions, your help is only a drop in the bucket. And that's true. That's, that can be demotivated. But we find it even down where it's not a drop in the bucket. bucket. You've got uh, two children, uh, three conditions, uh, condition one, uh, you can donate to a little girl, Lokia, who's facing starvation in, in an African country. Uh, second condition, you can donate to a little boy named Musa, facing starvation. The money goes to save the children. Uh, real donations collected actually was sent to save the children. The third condition, you can donate. The money will go to Rokia or Musa. You see both of their pictures up there. Uh, less money is donated when it goes to one or the other. And uh, we're more recently following this up. It seems that, that people feel uh, less good about helping uh, uh, the children if one of them is not going to be helped. So it's again, it's an example, and I, I think that is not rational. We should help the people we can help and not be deterred. We can never do it all. But again, it's, it shows the way the feeling system may be working here. That, uh, that when we're in it, if we're doing it logically, the logical thing is you can help that person, you can deal with this need, deal with it. Uh, don't be deterred by the things that are out of your control. But the feeling system, if we, if we don't think logically that, that way about it, if we just relate, relate to our, our anticipated warm glow, we may be misled uh, not to help. Um, so uh, there's another uh, element here which I'm not going to have time to go into. It. Slides that I spoke about yesterday and uh, is 
uh, touched upon a bit in, in the book, and that is <coughs> the, the fact that uh, we do a lot to help individuals in need, and uh, and uh, we uh, we often uh, turn off and turn our backs to uh, large uh, needs of great scale, as in mass murder or genocide or or issues of poverty, famine, disease, environmental destruction, species extinction, things where we get the information as, as statistics. The statistics don't, don't convey, uh, don't have meaning to us because they don't convey feeling. It's kind of like the population of China and Indonesia. Uh, we relate strongly to individuals in need because we can uh, create an emotional uh, uh, connection with, with the individuals. We lose it when, when it becomes numbers, and this is also a problem that uh, we need to, uh, to think about related again to the uh, risk of feelings. So, um, thanks for listening to all this. Uh, this Uh, quickly, efficiently, easily uh, through our through our feelings. So. 
decision making, and we, we were sort of uh, key, keying off of uh, economic theory and maximization of expected utility. It's a very kind of analytic type perspective, uh, uh, and thinking about about uh, you know, expected value, expected utility. And I was a, a student at the time and, and couldn't afford a very good car. I had a car that's a uh, 1951 car that uh, the uh, gas gauge uh, went out. So I didn't know how much gas I had. And so I uh, ran out of gas on a freeway near Chicago and pulled over to the side. And I realized to get gas, I would have to walk across the freeway. Now, I don't know if you ever tried to walk across the freeway where traffic is coming at uh, you know, uh, 60 miles an hour both directions. Uh, and uh, it was quite an interesting experience. So I would, I would look and you know, see the cars coming and think there was a gap and I would step out and suddenly I would realize that the closing was faster than I, well, I and so I would, I, I'd get scared basically and I would step back. And I was, so these feelings were kind of what we were dictating. I wasn't calculating speed times distance or anything else. I was just going by by my feelings. And unfortunately, at some point, the, the distance was enough. I felt comfortable when I when I cro started crossing and continued to cross. And um, that stayed. I didn't do anything about that uh, in terms of pursuing. I kept on doing my more analytic work. But I, but later on, as I got into this, I realized that that was a, a, an example of how most of the time we are guided by our by our feelings. My name is Mike. I teach philosophy at UCL. So the um, contrast you drew between um, the percentage of 20% of people like Mary become violent and then uh, uh, 20 out of 100 uh, become violent. I wonder how much that difference has to do with um, expressing it as a propensity of an individual versus frequency of a population, I mean, you, versus percentage versus frequency. Because, I mean, you, it's obviously, take, take a population of 60, you say, uh, 10 out of these people are dangerous, or you say 17% of them are dangerous, I mean, which is like one, one sixth. Um, I suspect that they might actually think it worse if you say 17% of them are dangerous. Uh, and, uh, and you could also express um, Mary's dangerousness as a frequency. I mean, when's people like her are released, you know, uh, two out of every ten times they, they, they go on to do something, and maybe they'll have less of a reaction to that, as opposed to saying population of 120 of them are dangerous. Um, yeah, I think there are ways, again, when you, whenever you, you communicate like this and you put a frame on something, you can uh, induce uh, perspectives, whether it's propensity, propensity, or thinking about it. Group. We didn't really uh, uh, get into that. And I suspect that there are probably uh, some some ways that you could uh, you could change this. But I uh, uh, don't know the answer. We didn't uh, we didn't do those kind of manipulations. Uh, we basically stumbled upon this uh, result. We were uh, asking psychiatrists and psychologists to make judgments about the dangerousness of people, and we just decided to, to use different formats. And we found, we did not win you know, to try it uh, as a frequentistic and probabilistic format. And we saw vastly different answers in the sort of uh, pursuit, pursuit this. Um, um, Daniel, I read the Oxford Economics. So, uh, again, I mean, I'm just 
what you observe is the decision of these people whether to release this person or not. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you could kind of analyze this decision either thinking of how dangerous, how bad it would be if this person actually commits this crime, or how likely this person is to commit the crime. Do you know, in some sense, what, what is really, where is the difference? Is it that, you know, focusing on this image, um, they perceive the, uh, if this person is, it does commit a crime, they perceive this event as worse in the, uh, when it's presented as a frequency than when it's presented as a probability, or is it that they perceive it as more likely? Um, or is it that you can't really, there's no way to tell, or, I mean, uh, That's a very, a very good question. The, the fact of, of conjuring up an image, having the, the, the format create an image in your mind, could well lead you then to have a different perspective on the event itself. Whereas, uh, uh, and it depends, I think, on what you're, image, what you're, what you're imaging this person doing. Uh, so I, I think it, it, it could work uh, that way. Uh, we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, look at that. We just uh, looked at, we looked at two things. One is uh, uh, the decision, you know, release or not. We also, in other cases, have people evaluate uh, the risk, quote, risk, where you're given the probabilities, but you're judging risk, which could be some blend of probability or, or consequence severity. We don't know, and, and we do know that the risk judgments also are higher in the frequency format. Uh, but it could be because the, uh, the outcome, the negative outcome is more vivid in, in creating that. Uh, so it's a good question, and, and uh, I think it's researchable. Uh, and we didn't study it. Okay. Um, Simon, it's a teaching environment for policy here. Um, I'm interested in what your research has to say about the extent to which the importance of feeling decreases the longer you have to make a decision. Because a number of your examples <coughs> seem to revolve around decisions which seem to need to be taken quite quickly, such as being at a party and being asked if you want to smoke a cigarette or being off the gap or being given. Um, to what extent is feeling still important for decisions that we can mull over for quite some time? Um, again, I think it would depend on the context and the degree to which you are motivated in that time that you have to think more carefully about it. I, I, guess, I think that that could be a factor. In fact, there, there's some work that suggests that uh, if you uh, if you give people if you have people ingest uh, glucose prior to making uh, a judgment, well, they're, they're looking at the, the weighting of uh, analytic versus uh, intuitive thinking. They find uh, people are uh, more likely to, to think harder and, and more analytically if they've uh, got some uh, glucose in their system. It, it takes the brain uses a lot of energy to, to think. <coughs> so that also would suggest that that uh, if you have the time.
Well, also, I, yeah, but behavior also uh, can affect the perception, right? There's a, it, exactly. it's a dual so, thing, and uh, just what, you know, how that works in different contexts, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's evidence that, you know, bi-directional influence, uh, but I don't, um, I don't have that's a big, that's a big research yeah. question, isn't it? Do you sense that you're actually, uh, my name's Donald Goodfellow, I actually have a background in marketing. Uh, my question is, do you think you're actually, or do you sense that you're underestimating effect? Because by and large, you are trying to measure it in laboratory or artificial situations, and you're measuring it through cognitive responses in the moment. Um, uh, interesting questions. But, uh, I think that, I don't know if we're underestimating it. We find it uh, incredibly powerful as a, as a predictor of response, even if we, it, it, you know, uh, even if we are underestimating it. Um, so, yeah, we are sometimes estimating it through unconscious responses. We're doing a little bit of work in the physiological response. You can measure it through a facial muscle uh, I see. Okay. So once again, you know, the rationale. 
some people uh, reacted to the uh, between groups finding. They said, well, uh, it's because uh, people like the excitement of, of the gamble. Even the small loss makes it more interesting gamble. That's why they were rating it more highly. Uh, and, uh, but when you put the gambles together, uh, they rate the, the, the no-loss gamble. I see. Okay. Okay. There's, there's a lot of work. So it was very a lot of work showing that we are we are often more sensitive in our evaluations in a comparative mode than in an absolute mode. Yeah. Especially if we're not really familiar with the uh, with what we're evaluating or, or with, the, with the scale. Yeah. Just finish that. Um, as I said at the beginning, the pool we'll be signing up is is new.